You are listening to the Spiritual Exercises Podcast. Thank you all so much for being here, for listening, for supporting me. This has been such an awesome adventure. And one of the cool things that I have absolutely loved doing in the process of creating this podcast is researching the Bible for you, researching um, what the scriptures really are saying, and um researching history and archaeology with my proof series in the last month or so, which has also been a blast. Um, If you don't have access to that series and you would like access, you just need to upgrade your subscription. For five bucks a month, you can get all of my extra podcasts that I send out. And right now I have been on a little bit of a hiatus from putting out music here, but I'm going to start doing that again, hopefully in the next week or two. Um, I know it was part of my promise with the upgraded subscription, although I don't think that's why most people are subscribing. So I I haven't felt horrible that I haven't been releasing music there, but I am going to start releasing music there once again. If y'all don't know, that is my full-time gig. I make money making music. And so um, I've been really blessed in that regard, but I am looking to expand and grow so that I can expand this ministry more so I can have more guests on um, and so I can have more opportunities to create great, interesting material for you all. And really what inspired this was releasing my book, um, Last year, I was able to release uh, something I'd been working on for five years. I named it Jesus Was Not a Modern Day Christian. Looking back now, that name is pretty in your face. I'm not sure it's the right name if you're trying to sell a lot of books, but it is the truth, and it is what my book actually goes after, which is modern day Christianity. Where did we get our ideas from, and do they match what Yeshua taught and who he is? And so I try to take on some of the areas where I think the church is lacking. I know the church is really, you know, has been awesome in a lot of ways um, and then been really, really lacking in a lot of ways, especially I would say in the last few decades, um, in the decades that I grew up in. Now, I quickly, before we get to the content of today, I did get to see the Jesus Revolution movie last week. And for those of you who might be looking for a little review, I say, go see it. I think it's it seems like a pretty accurate portrayal of what happened at the time. My mother was saved through one of the Jesus Revolution people. Um, he introduced her to the church and Christ, and she really came to know the Lord as her Messiah through that the work of that movement. And then my father through my mom. And so I credit that movement for my parents' strong faith um, and how they met Christ and what they passed on to me when I was young. And so... I think no matter what you think of those sorts of movements or what you think of what was going on at the time, that movement did actually change people's lives and did bless people. And, you know, my son cried through the whole film. Uh, It's a great film for teenagers. uh, And it brings out some of the, I think, the best aspects of that movement. There are some darker things that were going on with some of the people involved in in that movement. But I liked what the focus was. I thought it was very timely, very appropriate. One of those encouraging movies to watch right now as we look at the world and so much of the darkness in it, just to be reminded, God is always working and his spirit is always out there ready and waiting for those who are willing to repent and turn back to him. 
And part of this podcast is to encourage the church to be the first to do that in the areas where we have not been following God and we have been ignorant of his laws and his ways. It's time to repent and return so that we can receive the blessings, uh, not just personally. This isn't just a personal type of blessing. We want national blessings, right? God judges people individually in scripture, but he also judges the nations. And in fact, from what I read in the end times, God, there will be two different types of judgments. There will be national judgment, and then there will be personal judgment at the very end. And so I think it's important for us to remember our righteousness and our walk is not just about us. It's about our families. It's about our communities and it's about the nation. And I believe when God's people return to him, then he blesses the nations. So Anyways, I would say if you haven't seen it and you're questioning seeing it, even if just for the historical aspect of what happened during that movement in the 60s and 70s, um, go see it. It's it's really well done. It's not, you know, I hate to make this critique of a lot of Christian films, but a lot of Christian films just don't feel high quality. This one's really high quality. It's very enjoyable. It's well acted. Um, the script is good. And yeah, it's worth seeing. So Give it a give it a try. It's a good family outing. I did take my youngest with me, but I will give you just a little bit of warning for anyone under the ages. I would say of you know eleven or twelve. There are some scenes with drug use in them that are a little scary, and so you know just know your kids and be ready to talk about that if you decide to take your youngers, your littles, or um you know close their eyes. I have done this before in films. My kids don't love it, but uh, you know, if it comes up and you're like, yeah, this isn't going to work for my kid. Yeah. Just put your hand over their eyes. It'll be fine. They'll survive. Um, But yeah, I do want to give that forewarning Uh, might not be age appropriate for someone under 10. Um, It just depends on you and your family and what you want to allow in that regard. Okay, moving into our topic of today. Wow, I I decided to take on this series to discuss our conceptions, assumptions, ideas around hell and what the Bible actually has to say. I knew a little bit that it was going to be an intense intense environment to try to um, hammer out let's put it that way, to try to get a straight line through a lot of confusion. And I'll be honest, I was not even close to prepared for how much is actually going on regarding this topic historically. And what is true and what isn't is kind of difficult. Um, And I wonder if there's some vagueness around this on purpose, right? We have vagueness around what happens after Christ judges the final great white throne judgment. We don't know what things look like after that, right? There's vagueness. I think there's also a lot of vagueness around the afterlife. And so what I'd like to do is actually reinsert that vagueness for you. You know, I might not come to 100% conclusions here. I'm a researcher. I have a journalism major. This is kind of my something that I've always loved doing. And when I come across this much varied information and this kind of lack of complete clarity around words in the Bible and topics, I am not going to come at you with, hey, everything that I say is 100% accurate and 100% true. That's not going to be the intention of this series, even though I wish it could be. What What I do hope to do is to reinsert some vagueness around this issue so that, and here's my reasoning. 
you know, you might be like, why are we studying this? Why are we looking into this? Well, I can tell you without a shadow of a doubt, being in the industry that I've been in in music and being around a lot of unbelievers, when non-believers think about people in other countries who've never met Jesus, who don't know the story, um, being banished to eternal hellfire, they think that God is unjust. And I have to tell you, I agree with them. So when we go out and our testimony is that you have to know, you have to say the name of Jesus, right? And it's Yeshua or it's Yehoshua or whatever, you know, whatever the arguments are. And you have to know the story and you have to have done, done some, some, you know, repenting of specific things that the Bible dictates and all that, and that God will only, only forgive you and only allow, and otherwise, otherwise, if you haven't done this, you are literally tortured in hell forever. When that's our testimony, we are misrepresenting the Bible, and I'm gonna I'm gonna show you that today um, in what we study on one of these words. But you are also definitely, definitely um, maligning, in my opinion, God's character. What we know about God's character is that He is just and merciful. Those two things are balanced. Now, there's a lot of people out there that will say, "Yeah, well, justice is that we all die, right?" Here's what I see in scripture. What I see in scripture is that because of the fallen state of man, because uh, of what happened with Adam and Eve in the garden, and because we come from that fallen state, we don't have the necessary uh, garb, so to speak, in order to be in the presence of God without being killed. Okay. <laughs> we just like, you know, the priests in the Old Testament, they had to make a sacrifice and cover make sure their clothes were purely clean and put on the bells on the bottom and come in with incense. And they had to do all of these tasks in order to ready themselves and prepare the moment for when they would enter the Holy of Holies and hopefully wouldn't die, wouldn't be killed. Okay. We see this setup from the Old Testament. God is a God of fire. You cannot get around his holiness. We can't be in his presence without the covering of Christ, without being killed. Okay. That's what I see the Bible describing, that all of us have sinned. We all fall short and none of us have the covering without Christ. Right. Okay. So does this mean that Hitler and, you know, the nice old lady who lived her whole life in some small village in South America and, and you know, kind of did her best, that they have the same end? If, if she didn't know the Lord, do they have the same eternal judgment? I, I would say, don't you think, wouldn't you agree that if that's how God works with the afterlife— with the judgment piece, with the hell piece, that he isn't just? Wouldn't you be able to make that claim and be intellectually honest? I would say so. Yeah, you would be. And so the concepts of not being in the New Jerusalem or not being right next to Jesus and being there, there's, listen, we have to allow for more information into our preconceived notions here. There's the, I'm either in heaven right next to Jesus for eternity, or I'm in hell being tortured by something for eternity, okay? We have set up a logical fallacy with these two ideas with scripture. Scripture doesn't really describe this. 
In fact, there are specifically different locations for specific different entities in Scripture, and I'm finding this. Um, there's also, according to Jesus, a hierarchy even in heaven, even in the afterlife, even if you are saved. There's a hierarchy in that kingdom, and there are some who are chosen to do higher-level things than others based on how they lived. And see, you know, what that reveals to us when Jesus says, you know, the the ones who teach these commands and do them are greatest in the kingdoms. The one who relaxes these commands and teaches others to do so is least in the kingdom. There's your hierarchy. Okay. He's telling you that. When we let allow that more information in, we see a much more just, rational being that is the head of all things. But we're also being more biblically accurate. And that's what that's why I wanted to study this. I want to push you into biblical accuracy. When you talk to people and you want to scare them into loving God with the concept of eternal hellfire, you're actually misrepresenting what the Bible has to say about the afterlife. You don't really know what God, where God is going to send people. You don't. Do not make a claim that you do. What you do know is that without Yeshua, without Yeshua's grace, without his blood covering, without what he did on the cross, we would have no access to eternity with him. That is true. That's the real deal. That's the positive th side of accepting Yeshua is not only the blessings you receive on the earth from this, the, the joy and the peace and the comfort and, you know, all the, the relationship, but that in eternity you get to be in the wedding, hopefully, and you get to be with him. That That's, yes, that's true. But what happens to everybody else? You don't know, actually. So we need to be biblically accurate. And we're going to start today with one of the words. So many different Hebrew words are interpreted as the word hell in our King James Bible. Now, luckily in the Bible that I use, this term is used in these verses, and it's the term Sheol, okay? And I think it's pronounced, as far as, far as I could tell, like Sheol, Sheol, but um, it's uh, how it's spelled in my Bible, it's S-H-E-O-L, and this is not necessarily hell, okay? We need to understand this. This is the term for a place and we're going to go into more detail here and show you where some of these verses show up in the context of them. A place that people are held, their souls are held after they die. It's almost like a quantum state position. And we'll talk about that, this a little bit more too. But this term Sheol is found in the Bible 65 times. In the King James, I believe it's translated as pit three times, even though in Judaism, they do not believe Sheol means pit. Okay. Uh, it's translated as the grave 31 times and hell the other 31 times. So let's go to its very first use. The very first time Sheol, that term is found in the Bible because first use gives you a lot of context. And that is found in Genesis 37. We're talking here about the story of Jacob when Jacob's sons sell Joseph, his son, into slavery and then they trick Jacob and try to make him believe that Joseph had been eaten by a wild animal. And here's the verses. It says this in verse 33. He recognized it. They brought, brought his robe to him. Okay. It says he recognized it and said, it is my son's robe. Some ferocious animal has devoured him. Joseph surely has been torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and daughters came to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said. 
I will continue to mourn until I join my son in the grave. So his father wept for him. There's that word, the grave. That is the word Sheol. Is Jacob in that verse claiming that he's going to hell? Or is he just talking about death until I, until I die, until I'm put into the ground? I will be mourning my son. Well, I would contend, he's saying, until I'm put in the ground. That's the term there, right? Genesis later records uh, a recounting of this claim by his sons, this concept that Jacob was going to bring his gray hairs down with sorrow to Sheol if his son Benjamin does not come back home alive. And you can go review that story. But this is the first use in the Bible of this term. Now, in number 16, there's a rebellion. It's the famous rebellion of Korah, okay? And this is where this story is told. Now, in number 16, Moses describes that if the men of Korah are correct, they will die as all men. So the Korah come and they rebel against Moses. And so Moses sets up this test and he says, listen, if you're correct, you're going to die like all men die. You die a normal death. But if you're wrong, the ground will open up and swallow you. And they so he basically says the ground's going to open up, swallow you, and you're going to go down alive into Sheol. Huh. So we have Jacob saying until he goes to Sheol. And Jacob was considered a righteous man and he had relationship with God. And then you have the ground opening up and swallowing the rebellious at Korah, the ones who were in the midst of wickedness, they're also going to Sheol. What is this place? Is it hell? Is it both? Is it all of the above? It's a place for the good and the wicked, it seems like. Both good and evil are going there. In Deuteronomy 32.22, we see Sheol mentioned again. In describing his anger towards rebellious Israel, God says this, For a fire is kindled by my anger, and it burns to the depths of Sheol, devours the earth and its increase, and sets on fire the foundations of the mountains. All right, we've got fire going down to Sheol, God's anger, but it's also devouring the mountains and the earth as well, and, you know, this, this is a fire that's going to touch everything. So it doesn't necessarily mean that fire and hell go together. This, this is an angered fire. This is God angry. Um, and he's going to set the mountains on fire and everything on fire and Sheol. Okay, so does Sheol just mean depths there? The depths of where those people are, where people are buried? The King James Version translates Sheol here in this verse in Deuteronomy as hell. But is that what God means? Is that what this is saying? In 1 Samuel 2.6, we have another reference to Sheol, meaning grave. But then in 2 Samuel 22.6, we have Sheol translated at times as hell. The verse says this, starting in verse 5, For the waves of death encompassed me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of Sheol, and I think King James says hell there, the cords of Sheol entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. Now, this is David speaking, and this is a song of deliverance for him. David, was David saying that he had was, was having hell entangling him, that he was going to be dragged into hell? Because the, the context of what he's saying is destruction and death, right? And so is he talking really about the grave here, that he was going to die, that death was on his doorstep kind of an idea? 
Maybe, right? First Kings 2.6, David is telling Solomon not to let the gray hairs of one of his enemies go down to Sheol in peace. Again, more likely the grave is meant here. In Job 3.11-20, we have Job lamenting his birth. He makes some really strange statements about the place he would have gone had he not made it through his very young state. And he says this, and I quote, Why did I not die at birth, come out from the womb, and expire? I would have slept... Then I would have been at rest with kings and counselors of the earth who rebuilt ruins for themselves, or with princes who had gold, who filled their houses with silver. Or why was I not as a hidden stillborn child, as infants who never see the light? There the wicked cease from troubling, and there the weary are at rest. There the prisoners are at ease together. They hear not the voice of the taskmaster, the small and the great are there, and the slave is free from his master. Well, there in Job, this place of death, this Sheol, has, again, both the wicked and the weary, the prisoners, the small and the great, the kings. It contains a lot of people. In Job 7, 9, he says, as the cloud fades and vanishes, so he who goes down to Sheol does not come up. Yet, the King James Version translates shield just a few verses later as hell. In Job 11.8, in discussing the depths of God, God's wisdom, Job says this, It is higher than heaven. What can you do? Deeper than Sheol. What can you know? In Job 26.6, it kind of gets interesting. It says, Sheol is naked before God, and Abaddon has no covering. What is Abaddon? Ab- Abaddon, I believe, is how you pronounce it. According to Strong's Concordance, it is the place of destruction and ruin. We see this hand-in-hand comparison of Sheol and Abaddon, Abaddon in Proverbs fifteen eleven as well, which states, Sheol and Abaddon lie open before the Lord. How much more the hearts of the children of man. So is Sheol a different location than Abaddon? Is Abaddon in Sheol? We don't really have answers to this right now. I counted 16 times Sheol is used in Psalms, and it seems to be translated as both the grave and... Um, and hell, depending on the context. Okay, the Bible goes on this way, and you get the picture. Sheol has many English translations, but the main idea is that of death and being below the surface of the earth. It is a spiritual location, no doubt, perhaps made up of different spaces. And there's prophetic information about Sheol as well. In Isaiah 28, the word Sheol is used as the word death, There is a people in Isaiah 28 who are going to make a covenant with death. It says you make a covenant with Sheol. This is interesting. So there's a considerable lack of fire analogies to the descriptions of Sheol in the Old Testament. Okay, so I have to just ask, what is this place exactly? Or like I previously mentioned, is it a state? like a location that is also a state of being? Is it kind of like light is both a particle and a wave, a location and a state of being? In the quantum field, there are locations that are states of being. Is that what this is? And is it well translated when it's translated as hell? Now, according to some Jewish sources I looked up, it's not. They don't believe that this is a place of torture or torment. Um, they, they really just believe this is a place, you know, that is a waiting place. And it seems like people there might mostly be asleep, actually, but then sometimes they're not. So th- th- here's an interesting story. There's this moment um, 
in the Old Testament with the King Saul. Now, King Saul was sometimes for God and sometimes not. And in this case, God isn't speaking to him. So he goes to see uh, a, a witch, basically, a diviner, someone who can bring up the dead. And um, let's go to the Bible and, and get a quote here. It says this, so the king said to her, have no fear. What did you see? So this woman has, um, basically, he asked her to bring Saul up or uh, to bring Samuel up from the grave. Okay. And so this is the situation. So he says, have no fear. What did you see? The woman said to Saul, I see an angel rising from the earth. He said to her, what does he look like? She said, an old man is rising, wearing a cloak. Shaul knew that it was Samuel, and he paid homage and prostrated himself. Then Samuel said to Shaul, why have you disturbed me and brought me up? Huh. Okay, listen. This, this is kind of everything, this verse right now. So Samuel is awakened basically because he says why have you disturbed me it's it's like he was awakened not only that but he says and brought me up so, so he is somewhere that feels like it's below right he's underneath he's in the ground or he's somewhere where he's being brought up and so this one little weird story where this woman brings Samuel back from the grave, his spirit, um, and then Samuel recounts exactly what he had told Saul previously, actually, that the kingdom would be torn from him because of his wickedness. Um, but it tells you something about where these souls in the Old Testament are located, even a great wonderful, mighty prophet like Samuel, who clearly has relationship with God, is in this waiting place. He's in this place called Sheol. Um, and so we have to kind of grapple with this. Samuel didn't go to heaven. He wasn't, you know, above. He wasn't up with the angels. He was below. Now, Let's go to kind of the Jewish view of this because this is all, Sheol is used in the Old Testament, okay? And so they're going to have a particular way of interpreting this word. Um, it's a Hebrew word. Sheol is a Hebrew word of uncertain etymology, okay? It's a synonym of pit, ab abaddon, um, destruction, or tehom, which can mean abyss. It's kind of synonymous with those things. But it, according to the Jewish Encyclopedia, it connotes the place where those that had died were believed to be congregated. It talks about Jacob and the death of Joseph. Sheol is underneath the earth, okay? And there's some references here of Isaiah 11, um, Ezekiel, Psalms, Ecclesiastes. Um, and then the book of Enoch, which we'll get to in a moment here. Uh, it is very deep. And it marks the point at the greatest possible distance from heaven. The dead descend or are made to go down into it. The revived ascend or are brought and lifted up from it. And there's our first uh, Samuel. Um, there's also a Job reference to that. Psalms and Isaiah reference. Sometimes the living are hurled into Sheol before they would naturally have been claimed by it. I believe this happened in the case when the earth swallowed up a group of people in the Old Testament who were being evil in the, in the situation in Korah. Um, in which case the earth, yeah, is described as opening her mouth. That's in numbers. Sheol is spoken of as a land, but ordinarily it is a place with gates and seems to have been viewed as divided into compartments with farthest corners, one beneath the other. Here the dead meet. 
without distinction of rank or condition, the rich and the poor, the pious and the wicked, the old and the young, the master and the slave, if the description in Job refers as most likely it does to Sheol. The dead continue after a fashion their earthly life. Jacob would mourn there. David abides there in peace. The warriors have their weapons with them, yet they are mere shadows. And these are all references of scripture, guys. We've got First Kings where David references going to Sheol in peace. Warriors have their weapons with them, according to Ezekiel 27. They are mere shadows, according to Isaiah 9 um, and Psalms. Um, the dead merely exist without knowledge or feeling. Uh, silence reigns supreme, and oblivion is the lot of them that enter therein. Hence, it is also known as Duma, the abode of silence, and there God is not praised. Still, on certain extraordinary occasions, the dwellers in Sheol are credited with the gift of making known their feelings of rejoicing at the downfall of the enemy, according to Isaiah 9 and 10. Sleep is their usual lot, according to Jeremiah, Isaiah, and Job. Sheol is a horrible, dreary, dark, disorderly land, according to Job 21 and 22, yet it is the appointed house for all the living. Return from Sheol is not expected. It is described as man's eternal house. It is dust. Hence, in the Shimona Ezra, um, the dead are described as sleepers in the dust. Okay. That is according to the Jewish Encyclopedia. It doesn't seem like a fun place, but it also isn't our version of hell. And it definitely isn't heaven. And yet, it's where the Bible describes all the souls, at least the ones in the Old Testament, where they all went, no matter who they were. So here's the thing. What I know is true is that there's no version of our way describing hell in the world, word Sheol in the Old Testament. And in, therein, I do believe we have uh, some problems with translations when that word hell does appear in replace of Sheol. I just question the meaning of that and you should as well you should really wrestle with is that the context here and is that's is all of a sudden some hellfire torment our version of hell is that all of a sudden appearing in this verse does it make sense there right now the new testament version of the word sheol is the term hades so you know we go from hebrew to greek and so the the greek version of that is the term hades which still is descriptive of a waiting place so there is some discussion, let's get to the book of Enoch here, um, I'll just mention it quickly. There's some discussion that ancient views of hell may have come from the books of Enoch, okay? Perhaps specifically the first book, which scholars believe is probably the most authentic out of all of the books of Enoch. Um, there in that book, uh, Sheol is described as a terrible place, um, not Sheol, I'm sorry, hell is described as a terrible place which is for the fallen angels and those who corrupted mankind during the flood. There's also a desolate place for those who speak against the Lord. But again, here that desolate place is not described the same way as a fiery or torturous furnace is. And so here's what we have. What we have in the afterlife is different locations. We need to be comfortable with that. There, And I think most people nowadays do understand that there's not just two locations, that there's not like fiery hell and beautiful heaven. That's really not the afterlife. But for those of you who maybe grew up in churches that never gave you any other options, the Bible has multiple types of locations here. There is going to be a fiery place that is built for the Nephilim and, and the fallen angels and those who deceive mankind and do this great work of evil against mankind. And we're going to talk about that as we get into some of the other words that are used in scripture for hell, and especially the New Testament, what it has to say about hell. 
Um, but then there are also other locations that are not fiery torture chambers. There's something else. And so what, what, <laughs> what conclusion can we come to at this point in just our studying of the word Sheol? I think we need to come to the conclusion that maybe we don't know everything there is to know about what happens to people in the afterlife, even to us. And in fact, I believe there's prophetic um, books that discuss that everyone falls asleep until the final judgment day. If you die before the reign of Christ on the earth, you wait. You wait until the great white throne judgment. And that is when God places you in your final location and that people are just asleep. And who knows what that's like? Time might go by really fast. It might seem like the blink of an eye. Um, I don't know if you're in a dream state. I don't know, but we're going to get into those verses and try to understand what this means actually. And then at the great white throne judgment, what happens to people? Where are they sent? And, and depending on who you are, how does this operate? What is the final wedding feast really about? You know, maybe hopefully we'll get into some of the really good, good aspects at that great white throne judgment of what happens, who is the bride? Um, what's the wedding feast, all of that. But in this discussion about hell, uh, hopefully I have helped implant, like I said at the beginning of this, some vagueness for you. Uh, this word Sheol is vague. It is not always hell. And when your Old Testament Bible, if it uses the word hell, you can go look up in Strong's Dictionary which word is this. Now, there are like a dozen more words that are interpreted as hell in our Bibles. And so we we are going to go into those as well. I know this is a little bit dry. I know this is, hey, here's where this word shows up and, and here's the strong concordance version of it. But this is how I'm setting the foundation for some of what I hope to be able to teach you. If you don't understand where these words show up and the context that they're in, um, then how can I prove to you my point? So Hopefully we can get through some of these definitions of terms, and then we'll get into kind of some of the ideas surrounding these terms as we head towards the end of the series. All right, that is plenty for today. I hope you all have a wonderful, wonderful week and um, experience the blessings of the Lord, the joy, the peace of the Lord. And as always, if you have prayer needs, please reach out. I I'm very happy to put you on my prayer list and my prayer partners list if you'd like. Um, and always, always praying for all of you. But if you would like specific prayer this week, please reach out. All right. Till next time.